Well, good morning. So good to have you here. Come on in and have a seat. And for those of you that are watching by live stream, welcome as well. Um, my name is Pastor James Long. I'm one of the uh, pastors that are here. You'll see Pastor Tim um, preaching a little bit later. Uh, if you're new to our church, welcome. If you haven't done so already, out of the sanctuary to the right is uh, a welcome table. I would encourage you to go by there. They have a gift for you. Um, and you could get any information about our church from there. So out of the sanctuary to the right, right at the end of the service. Also, if you're new at the end of our services, we usually have a fellowship hour. Um, almost feels like fellowship two hours because some people are here a couple of hours after church. Um, so it's out in the cafe area, which is so great. Uh, so many people stay around and get some good food and some fellowship time. So uh, we look forward to uh, connecting with you there. Also, just a couple of quick announcements. Uh, one, uh, Community Blend has their one-year anniversary dinner on May 3rd. I think today is the ending date to sign. Did I say May? I said May. I'm looking at March. Uh-huh. It's March the 3rd, so it's uh, this week, uh, and it's from 6 to 9 p.m., but today is the closing day to register for that. Uh, there, is a, um, there is a table outside for Community Blend. I'm sure that you could do that, or you can find Jewel or Craig um, to sign up. Today's the connection day. Uh, connection team, uh, those people that welcome you as you come into this um, church, open the doors for you, those that... Um, take care of the welcome table, those that are the ushers that um, usher you here into the sanctuary, that's all part of the connection team. We're looking to continue to grow that team. For those of you that are on the connection team, we're having a meeting next Sunday after church. You should have gotten an announcement already, but if you're interested in joining the connection team as well, we'll be meeting right after church service uh, next week. Other than that, I think that's all that I have. Um, be in prayer for a number of the requests. If you're on our um, email list, you'll get prayer requests out every week. Uh, Pastor Doug um, went through his service for his brother yesterday, so I just continue to pray for uh, Pastor Doug and his family. And uh, we also are praying for Kim's um, cousin, Kim's cousin Jeff, that just came out this week, who has diabetes, and he may need an amputation of a leg. So uh, pray for them. So let me go to prayer, and let's begin our time. Lord, in, in Sunday school, we read this passage from Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it will labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating bread of anxious toil. But then it says here, Lord, for he, you, gives to his beloved sleep. So, Lord, I thank you that in the midst of the anxieties and the chaos and the confusion of this world, that we could rest knowing that you're at work for us. You're our great protector. You're our great savior. You're our great God. You're with us. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you're an amazing and beautiful and compassionate and caring God. 
Lord, in the midst of the trials as well, we, we recognize brothers and sisters here are, are struggling, Father. We, we know that several among our community have cancer and they're battling through that, Father, through the toils and the pains and the trials, Lord. I pray for them. I pray um, for, for Diana, Father. I pray for Gary. I pray for Marty, Lord. I pray that you would be touching them and bringing the restoration that you can do. Lord, I pray for uh, Kim's cousin as well, Jeff, who is struggling right now with his diabetes, Father, and they really want to be able to get this under control so they don't have to amputate. Lord, I pray that you would um, be working with the doctors and wisdom as well uh, for all that they do, Lord. I thank you for the ministries that are here, Lord. I thank you for Pastor Doug and all that he does for us. I pray for his family, Father, that you would be comforting him. And Father, in all this, I pray that you be reflected and honored and glorified in this service today. Remind us that you're the one that builds this house. Father, I pray that this house would bring glory and honor and majesty to your name. Help us to reflect you through song, through the spoken word, and help us to reflect you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
cross. Yeah. 
sing how great the chasm. How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation, I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished, the end is written. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Thank you, Lord. Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory. has spoken, I am forgiven, the King of kings calls me his own. Yes, he does. Beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever, Jesus Christ, my living hope. Sing this out to him. sealed the promise your buried body began to breathe out of the silence the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on praise you Jesus then came the morning that sealed the promise your buried body began to
That's where we all live. And how desperately, Lord, we need to see that truth that we have sung. That Christ is our living, perennial, undying hope. And so, Lord, this morning we confess our trust in you. This morning, Lord, I lift up before you our friend Omar, a a new gentleman at our church this morning. His uh, back was broken in an accident. A week and a half ago, nine screws, two rods in his back. And Lord, as he uh, seeks to work through this suffering, I pray that he will know that we as a church family are lifting him up and praying for him. Uh, God, asking that your healing hand would rest on him in a very powerful and undeniable fashion that you will raise him up and have him uh, active again, back at his job again, able to provide for his family again. So just pour that blessing over this young man, I pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, you know the burdens that are present this morning. You know the needs that are often unspoken. Uh, You know all things. And so we trust, God, that through your word this morning, you would open our eyes. And you would allow us in the midst of our suffering to see the hope that is so prevalent in your word through the work of Jesus. So bless our study of your word this morning, Lord. Give us ears to hear even the complex parts of this text. Make them clear, illuminate our hearts by the Spirit, and help us to lay hold of truth that changes us and changes our lives. And for some this morning, Lord, their eternal destiny. We pray for these blessings because of Christ, our living hope. And all God's people said, amen. I want you to be seated, and the uh, children can be dismissed for junior church. My wife was just reminding me, I, I actually remembered today, so. <laughs> I usually don't, so she is absolutely justified in the reminder. <clears throat> so I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of First Peter, chapter 1. We're going to complete uh, today uh, the passage that we began last Sunday morning. <clears throat> so most of us... Uh, when we watch the Olympic Games, do it with uh, a bit of envy, right? Uh, when I see uh, people taking the podium, there, there's, especially when I was younger, there was part of me that wanted to say, man, I would love to, I would love to be that person, right? To identify something I'm passionate about, to excel at it, and then to finally stand on that podium. But the truth is, few people ever stand on podiums. 
because we resist suffering. Uh, Suffering is God's gymnasium where God graciously allows and directs suffering into our lives for our growth and for our good. Our problem is that we tend to resist suffering. We see suffering as negative, as not having a positive impact. And when it comes, our tendency is to say, God, take this away from me. Right? We're very much like the Apostle Paul, right, in 1 Corinthians 12, where he said, God, I, I have this struggle, this pressure in my life, and my simple request is that you would take it away. I think all of us can relate to that because we have a tendency to view suffering as not good. I think I can say safely this morning that perhaps the most popular churches in America today and the most popular teachers in America today have stolen from the church the value of suffering. The message is God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise today. That is his plan for his children. Nothing but that will satisfy. I don't know how you can read the book of 1 Peter many other portions of scripture, the life of our savior, and come to the conclusion that suffering is in fact a bad thing. I think as we read scripture, we find that God exalts suffering to a fascinating position because it is at once undeniable and beneficial. And so Peter addresses a whole letter to a church that is suffering in a number of ways. In chapter 1, in chapter 4, and in chapter 5, he talks about the church experiencing all kinds of suffering, moving through various types of struggles and difficulties, some by sickness, some emotional struggle, some spiritual struggle, some physical, some personal, loss of job, loss of home. The early church suffered in horrendous ways. And Peter writes to them so that in the midst of their suffering, they could have hope. And it's interesting that as you read through this passage of Scripture, we looked last week at verse 3. It tells us that we have a living hope in Christ by the resurrection from the dead. That is, we look at our suffering and the suffering of Christ. We look just beyond his suffering and burial and see the resurrection. And that pattern of Christ's suffering is to be a pattern that inspires our hope. Following the season of struggle, there is glory coming. Okay, so we have this perennial hope assured by the resurrection of Christ. And then secondly, in verses four and five, we have a secure future that is secured through the work of Christ on Calvary's cross. Despite all that threatens to deprive, we have an inheritance is what God says. We have a bright future. We have something that is kept for us, and we, by God, are kept for it. He is protecting us, and he is protecting what he is bringing us to. And those are two thoughts that are brought up in this text early on. That's verses 3 through verse 5. And in verse 6, Peter begins by saying, In all this we greatly rejoice. And the all this becomes interesting, right? Because all that has been discussed thus far in the text is this very beautiful, condensed statement about the gospel in verses one through five. 
And I think what Peter is saying is something like this. To get through what 6 through 9 is going to talk about, these pressures, these trials that are inevitable in our experience, we need to be clinging to the truth of verses 1 through 5. And verses 1 through 5 are essentially a very condensed yet deep discussion of what God in Christ has done for us. So our hope, our perennial hope, is rooted in the accomplishment of God, not in our tenacity, not in our ability to stay tough in difficult times. So the call of this text is not be a strong person, okay, on your own. No, the the call of this text is to remember what God has done for you and allow that to lay a solid foundation under your life so that you can stand firm in the midst of the struggles that indeed are coming. Okay, and just like for a gymnast, those struggles in the gym are crucial to standing on the podium. So the struggles that we face in our Christian life, by God's design, aim to put us on the podium, standing before him one day, hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. So folks, embrace this difficult truth, okay? Ponder it. Let, it, let it sink in. There's part of you that's probably gonna wanna resist it, okay? As I, as I studied in this, I'm like, oh God, that's, that's hard truth, that's difficult truth, but there's a sense as you tie it into the work of Christ that you begin to realize that it is in fact beautiful truth. So we are secured by the gospel, that's what verses three through five are about. So, verses six to nine, we have joy and suffering, and then secondly, we have an incredible privilege. We're gonna look at those two truths this morning. Joy and suffering. Peter starts by saying, in all this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes, even though it is refined or purified by fire, your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ is revealed. And Peter says this, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are now receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So the first kind of driving theme of this text is that Christians have joy, and I have the word in my notes, in suffering, but it's really joy despite suffering. Okay, so that even if suffering is present in my life as a Christian, the glory of what God has done for me overwhelms that suffering with rejoicing and joy. Okay, and so those are things that we need as we work through this, we need to remember that. So I wanna work through this topic of suffering. Okay, because this text in a rather extensive yet not long way deals with the topic of suffering. The first thing I want you to notice is the nature of suffering. The suffering in this text is real. The word literally means to be deeply troubled, to suffer grief, to experience emotional stress, And the idea is of water that is being churned up, okay? When you look at uh, water during a time of flood, whenever there's heavy rains, Tim Hoff likes to go look at bodies of water, particular running bodies of water, okay? There's something about 
that that I find fascinating, the power of that, the pressure of that, the, the, the strength of that, right? But when you look at that, it, I don't look at that and say, my, how relaxing, okay? I remember back in, I think it was 2005, I remember going over to Phillipsburg during those floods when they were releasing water from the reservoirs up north and, 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 and the water was literally hitting the free bridge in Phillipsburg. Okay, I remember looking at that. The thought in my heart wasn't when peace like a river, okay? The thought in my heart is that is, there is turbulence there, there's turmoil there, there's pressure there, there's danger there. And that's the idea of the word that's used here. Suffering for us as believers is real. The stress is real. I think in the Christian church, we tend to be confused about suffering, don't we? When I was a kid, we sang a song in our church called, At the Cross, At the Cross, Where I First Saw the Light, and the burdens of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. Is that true? The, the, the implication of that type of teaching, which is what I was raised under, was you may be going through hard times, but you better stuff it and love and rejoice in Jesus. The implication was, yes, you're going through suffering, but if you ignore it, it's not as bad. Okay, and I, what I would argue from this text is, Peter says, if now for a season, you must endure trials of many kinds, that the, the argument is that the, the suffering here is a real suffering. Job chapter one. We remember the story of Job, right? Job is, is hit with wave after wave of turbulence in his life, loss of almost everything, save his own life. Wife criticizing him as he faces this circumstance, wondering, Job, what did you do that would cause this? You know what the Bible tells us? It tells us that Job shaved his head, tore his robe, and fell in worship. And the Bible then says this, in this deep expression of grief and sorrow and loss, in all this, Job 121, Job did not Sin. So that when you're going through a season of grief, the proper biblical response is, to, is not to act like it's not hard. It's not to act like it doesn't hurt. It's not to keep your chin up and to be optimistic. That's not the call. The call is to rest in the promises of God that are unshaken by the turbulence that is present in your life, though real. The Apostle Paul, reflecting on his own suffering, said, we are hard-pressed on every side, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, always bearing in our bodies the death of Jesus. And here's the way he describes it. Death is at work in us. We are in the midst of deep struggle. And Paul's not like, hey, let's just redefine it. Let's recast it. Let's see it differently. No, what he does is he points to Jesus as our hope despite, he points to Jesus as the ground of rejoicing in spite of, because that truth is unshaken, because it is, as we just sung, a living perennial hope in the midst of the turbulence 
that you and I often face in life. Even our Savior, as he moved towards the cross, in the book of Matthew, this same word, lupeo, is used. It's the word to suffer grief. And, and this is, comes editorially from Matthew. He's looking at Jesus. He's looking at his countenance. Jesus in the garden isn't acting like pain isn't real. He is so demonstrative and so expressive that Matthew will later say these words. He was visibly troubled and overwhelmed. So folks, when you're in the midst of suffering, the answer to your struggle is not put a smile on your face, okay? It's, no, in the midst of this deep grief, God is present and God is good. And in all this expression of grief, Job didn't sin and neither do you when you admit the true nature of what you're going through. Christians do not deny, deny suffering. We deal with it as a real thing. It's interesting also to note in verse six, he says, in all this you greatly rejoice, that is in, these, in the salvation of God, even though now for a little while. I just pause on this and just say this real quick. Trials are temporary. And Peter is desperate to cause us to know the depth of grief, but also that it is sovereignly controlled by God. And for that reason, it is temporary. It is sovereignly restricted. Just like in the case of Job, right? Satan comes to God and says, God, Job trusts you because you let him have this, this, and this. And God's like, Satan, take it away. Go ahead. And in all this, Job did not sin. He was in grief. He was in loss. He was in suffering but it was sovereignly controlled by God. And here, Peter uses this beautiful little statement, if now, for a little while. And then the necessity of trials. And it's fascinating how this is couched in verse six and verse seven. He says, though now for, in verse six, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer Okay, and the indication of that is, as you, as you unpack this grammatically, it, it's that there was a necessity to the suffering. It was allowed by God or brought by God to serve a purpose in your life. It was aiming to accomplish something. And then in verse seven, he says, these have come so that. All right, so that is to say what? The suffering that has come into my life has been brought into my life to accomplish something, to do something, to change something. I had to suffer. And this, the idea of this, the, there's a little word in the Greek, deon, which literally points to the idea of it was necessary. It is necessity. That's a hard truth to grasp for us, isn't it? What I think is necessary is good times, an easier life, deliverance from my struggle. That's what I think. But God designed something for us that accomplishes purposes and goals that we could never achieve apart from that which is necessary. You had to suffer. You know, I was reading in the book of Genesis this week in my devotions, and I was reading the story of Joseph. And it's when you get to the end of the story, Joseph is hated by his brothers. They want to murder him. They can't quite bring themselves to do it, so they sell Joseph as a slave into Egypt. 
And there eventually Joseph rises to second in command in the land of Egypt by the hand of a sovereign God in suffering, okay? And then there's a famine in the land of Israel where his family that sold him into slavery lives. They come seeking food and don't know that the person who will provide food to save their lives is their very brother that they rejected, cast aside, caused grief and suffering. And here's the way Joseph cast it. Joseph says, you sold me into slavery, but three times in Genesis, uh, I believe it's 49 or 45, three times you sold me, but God sent me. Okay, why was Joseph in Egypt? because his brother sold him into slavery, because they hated him and wanted to do away with him. They despised his preciousness in the eyes of, his, of their father. And they wanted to do away, couldn't quite bring themselves to elimination, so they send him off so they would never see him again. Joseph can say, you sold me, but God sent me. Okay, and folks, I just let that, is that a paradox? Yes. Is there mystery in that? Yes. Is there truth in that? Yes. Be careful what you say is bad. Be careful to say when suffering comes, God, take this away. You don't want your children to suffer. Folks, I don't know how you could read this passage of Scripture and not come to the conclusion that God allows and sometimes brings suffering for purposes that are way beyond my understanding. And the way to get rid of them is to work through them and to see the purpose that God designed so that when you come forth, you are pure gold. Okay? So, so that's the necessity. The next question is, what is the purpose of these trials? And verse 7 answers this in the most beautiful analogy. It says, these have come, these Griefs, these brokennesses, these sufferings that cause pain in your life have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith. And what is faith? Faith is the means by which I lay hold of the evident promises of God. Okay? So faith is my expression back to God. He makes a promise. He brings the gospel. I respond by saying, God, by your grace, I believe. Okay? So faith lays hold of promises despite circumstances, okay? Sometimes it lays hold of promises because of circumstances. That's not always a bad thing. The purpose of suffering, he then says, as he moves on is, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, the idea there is the true genuineness of your faith is learned in trials. Trials serve as a professor to tell you the true nature of your faith and the trials come to purify your hold on God. Okay, because this text has already said in verses two to five that God has hold of you. And you know what God wants to do? God wants you in response to lay hold of him. Okay, which I can't do unaided. I can't do apart from a move of God, from the grace of God enabling me to want the God who is allowing me to go through a difficult time. 
And here's what, here's what, what, what Peter does. I am so tempted to say Paul every time I, if you hear me hesitate, that's why, okay? It's an ADD slip that I'm, I'm dealing with, all right? These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even when refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. So what does Peter do? Or Peter compares faith to gold. Now what is gold? Okay, historically what is gold? Gold in recent days has been called a store of value. Okay, meaning the, 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 the gold coin that Tim Hoff has at home in an undisclosed location, okay? In light of what I told you a week ago, okay? That gold coin is never gonna be used, melted down and used for something else. It simply is a store of value. And that's what gold is historically, right? It, 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 it's a, it's a, uh, an expression of wealth. Uh, it is a standard or a measure of value, and it is known to be durable. It doesn't, if I went into my little box and I got my little gold coin out that I treasure so much, and it was rusty, that would tell me something about that alleged gold coin, that it is not pure gold. It has it is expressing qualities of things like iron or steel, right? And it would tell you that it's not true. So to prove that gold, to test it and to purify it, you would subject it to fire. The fire does not destroy gold, fire purifies gold. It exposes its true value, okay? And the idea in this text is that while gold is, or while that our faith is compared to gold, trials are compared to a crucible. Okay, and a crucible would be a ceramic vessel capable, capable of handling high heat. Okay, and into that crucible, a jeweler place, places what is thought to be gold, presumably 24 karat gold. It's thought to be pure gold. So you put that gold into that crucible and over a small period of time with intense heat, that gold begins to liquefy. Okay, and what happens in a crucible is this. It, its purpose is to test the genuineness and to improve the quality, and that test is crucial to a valuable outcome. The more assured that gold is to be pure, the more valuable it is. That's the picture here. Okay, so that gold is in that vessel. It melts Pure gold, because it is dense and heavy, in liquid form, drops to the bottom, and on the top you have something called slag, okay? And slag is what you get when you purify uh, precious metals. It's the impurities that are exposed when? When heat is applied, okay? So my faith is like gold. Trials at the hand of a sovereign God are necessary to prove or to improve the purity and genuineness of our faith, okay? Our ability to hold on to God because we tend to be contaminated from time to time, don't we? And so what a jeweler does is when that slag comes to the top, some call it dross, it's, it's kind of swept off, it's pushed aside and what remains is a purer form of gold, a more valuable gold as a result of the fire or testing. What's the lesson? The lesson is as fire exposes the genuineness of gold, 
exposes its quality. So trials have the effect of increasing and improving the value of our faith. Tested faith. Believers who have been through difficult times tend to have more impact than those who have not been through difficult times. Okay? So we have a daughter, uh, Jess, that lost a baby at birth. Okay? Because she has been through that crucible, that trial, when people in her sphere of influence experience a similar thing, guess who they go to? They, go to, they don't call me. They don't call her pastor out in Kansas City. They call her. Because that ordeal, that, that trial has suited her. It has equipped her to help people in a way that in which I would be wholly inadequate. I would not resonate. I would sound dissonant. I would be saying the right things, but I don't get it. She gets it. She gets it. And her proven value in God's hand as an instrument is increased despite that struggle. And in fact, because of that struggle. It's a powerful truth. It's interesting at the end of verse seven, having gone through these things, here's what Peter says. He says, your faith now of greater worth than gold, which perishes. Okay, this is an interesting thought. Because if you ask yourself the question, does gold perish? What's your answer to that question? I think the better question is, in what sense does gold perish? I think it's in this sense. At the end of my life, I'm not going to care about my gold coin. Its capacity to enrich, to add value, to change my life will end when my life ends. But the proven faith that God gives is more precious than pure gold. It is more valuable because its value to me is only enhanced by the ultimate trial. Does that make sense? Death takes me to the greater prize if I have faith in Jesus Christ. The last days, so the end of verse seven says this. It says, your faith refined by fire results in praise, glory, and honor when Christ is revealed. And the idea of when Christ is revealed means at the end of the road, at the end time in the last day, those that have placed faith in Christ will be standing and will have value and will from God, this fascinates me, from God will receive praise, glory, and honor. Folks, how I respond to trials today impacts my future standing with Jesus. Let that settle in. I think this praise also reflects back to God clearly. But it seems to me, and most commentators agree, that this praise, glory, and honor is something the father is expressing on his children. Kind of like in the Old Testament, the prophet says, he sings over you with rejoicing. 
He counts you precious to him and he allows you to go through those trials so that you can become more valuable and more precious. Powerful thought. So don't resist the fire of suffering because in the furnace you gain and learn lessons. Your faith grows, your value increases. And one of the thoughts from the Old Testament that, 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 that is almost certainly in the mind of Peter as he writes this text, because he, as you read through this, this text, is steeped in Old Testament scriptures. He's almost certainly reflecting back onto Daniel 3, right? When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to compromise for temporary benefit, they go through the trial in the furnace, and as Nebuchadnezzar is watching them in the furnace, what's his question? It's heated seven times. He throw, has them thrown in from the top. He's below looking into that furnace that was used for cooking bricks and building the beauty of Babylon. He's looking in there and he says to everybody, he says, how many people did we throw in the fire? The response from up top, where the hole is, the chimney is, three. And Nebuchadnezzar's response is, why do I see four? And in there, one like the son of man. And the answer to that question is probably found a little further back in the book of Isaiah, 43, verses 2 to 3 and 5, where Isaiah says, the prophet, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not kindle on you. Folks, when you take pure gold and stick it in fire, the flames attack that gold, but it doesn't kindle because there's nothing there that would combust. And God says to his children, in the furnace of affliction, when you walk through that season, the, the great promise is this, I am with you in ways that you and I cannot even imagine. But his promise is the flames will not kindle on you. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Fire and flood in this text are extreme hardships. And the promise from God is they will not destroy you because I am with you. I've often meditated when I've taught in the book of Daniel. I've meditated on the, 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 the attitude or the demeanor of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When Nebuchadnezzar says to them, Come out. <laughs> I just, man, what would your attitude be? Right? What, what would your demeanor be? Right? I, I, I would probably be a mess. I would probably be so sinful, it would be pathetic. But these guys met God in the furnace. And they plead with Nebuchadnezzar to honor God. And Nebuchadnezzar responds by giving praise to God. Why? Because these three didn't compromise, presumably, like all the other Jews in the kingdom of Babylon did. Folks, only three stepped up to face the fire and met God in the fire and were better for their suffering than they were before it. Isn't that an amazing truth? So this text says God allows these trials to come and they have the effect of purifying and changing you and they change you in a way so that when Christ comes, Jesus says, good job. 
Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. Think about this question. Would you trade places with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? My response to that question, it depends when. (laughs) Right? Because most of us would be happy to trade places after the fire. But would you trust God enough in your suffering to walk with him in the fire? Because that's the call of this text. God designs this to make you better, not bitter. He allows it to come to change you. And so James would say in James chapter one, count it all joy when you face trials of all kinds because the testing of your faith produces staying power. It's the idea of the word. The word endurance means to hold your ground, to stay where you are, uncompromised, Trials have the effect of stealing us, of strengthening us, of purifying of us, and empowering us as we yield to the work that God by his spirit is doing in our lives. I want you to see verses eight and nine now in light of this statement in six and seven. I'm just gonna deal with these two verses very quickly. He says, trials will change you and will result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ is revealed. And then, and then Peter goes into this very beautiful expression about the preciousness of Christ to those who have just gone through suffering. So watch what he says in verse eight. He says, though you have not seen him, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna editorialize here. Peter's writing to the church up in that northern area, Turkey, Istanbul, that area. He says, though you, church there, never physically saw him like I did. Okay, does that make sense? So Peter's writing to them, and he says, though you have not seen him like I did, yet you love him. And even though you not, do not see him yet, meaning that promise at the end of verse six hasn't happened. Christ has not yet been revealed in his glory, his second coming. And though you have not seen him like I did, you love him. And even though you do not see him yet, you are, and I'll just give you the, 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 the meaning of this verb, you are believing in him and you are being filled with joy unspeakable and glorious. For You are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Your future is utterly secure. It is kept by God. That word salvation I told you last week is used four times in this text. It is Christian hope. One day there is rescue. There will be an end to these troubles. but now we walk through a season of struggling. We walk through a season of suffering. But Peter wants them to know that they are now believing and they are now being filled and they are now receiving the end result or outcome of their faith. That is, through the trials, they are in a more serious fashion laying hold of the glory of the person of Christ and his suffering and his resurrection. Okay, folks, the only way that you and I will come to fully know, adore, love, and treasure Christ 
is as we walk through seasons of difficulty that strip us of temporary things and allow us to see what matters most. And it is typically only through those seasons of suffering that a Christian gains clarity, that they see more clearly the glory of Christ that this text talks about. And as a result, they are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. The word literally means a glory and a joy that simply can't be put into words. If you watch the Super Bowl and you watch the interviews after the game, reporters ask stupid questions to people, right? How do you feel? What's this mean to you? Oh, did we win? <laughs> right, it, it, it's, it hasn't settled in yet. So it, it's, they're, they're thrilled and they're celebrating, but they haven't sat down for the serious interview to contemplate what that struggle and victory meant to their life. I mean, some of these guys, obviously, if you're not a football fan, whatever, but they, they, they've poured their whole life. This is their life. And to get to the pinnacle of what they love leaves you speechless. How much more? How much more does suffering and how much more do trials clarify the surpassing value of Christ? Peter is, I think, amazing. He says, because you are believing in him, you are being filled. Do you see that those are contemporaneous, present tense verbs? While believing, you are rejoicing and you are being filled. Okay, folks, here's what I want you to know. A Christian is not someone who believed in Jesus, focused on a past act. A Christian is someone who is believing, who is receiving, who is being filled. Okay, so the day of your salvation is your birth. It's just the beginning, but you're immature. And the, the, the trials have, the, have the, 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 the effect of maturing and purifying and growing you so that Christ becomes more precious. And what you learn about Christ becomes exceedingly inexpressible and yet glorious. Isn't that amazing? So trials have this purpose. I think it's why in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 10, Paul begged God to take away his struggle three times. And God said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you in this necessity. For my power is perfected in weakness, in the furnace. What's Paul's response? That being the case, because what happens? When you're going through suffering, a lot of times, what do we tend to do? we tend to want to conceal it, don't we? You tracking with me? We're going through a hard time. Many times people think that hard times are an evidence of God's judgment, aka the book of Job. And so we conceal it. You know what Paul says? Paul says, I glory in my infirmities. I am glad to call them out, to express them, because when I am weak, then I am strong. Let that settle in. The trial that has come into your life has, has kind of caused you to isolate. It has stolen some of your power. And if you don't lean on God, it has the ability to destroy you. You know what Paul says? God allowed that trial to come. And I'm going to glory in it 
so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And what a beautiful promise as he, as he learns in the trial, my grace is sufficient, my power is perfected in weakness. So here's the bottom line, persecution, suffering, loss, make you feel marginalized, they make you feel like an outsider, they may make you feel unloved. And Paul has a reminder in the second portion of this text. So the first, the first part is that we rejoice in suffering, the second part is we have a privileged position with God. And it's interesting because this has a lot to do with our standing with God. Okay, it has a lot to do with understanding how the gospel comes to us. And it's, it's a fascinating text. And in it, Paul is expressing the incredible privilege of people after the cross. That's the audience that Peter is writing to, or Peter is, is, is writing to. Are you all just calculating that out when I say Paul? Okay, I appreciate that. So look at verse 10. So trials bring you to the end result of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Concerning this salvation, this rescue by God that's taught in verses one to five. Okay, so verses one to five lay out the glorious gospel. That gospel suits you for verses six, seven, eight, and nine. And then in verse 10, he goes back to them to express to them the privilege that they have as God's children. Concerning this salvation that you have, that you are receiving, that you're rejoicing in, concerning that salvation that is manifested when Christ comes, concerning that, the prophets who spoke of the grace of God that was to come searched intently and with greatest care. They were trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the suffering of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. Like it's a fascinating portion of scripture. You could literally do an entire sermon on this alone. But I want you to think about it. In what sense does a New Testament believer have an advantage over an esteemed Old Testament prophet. Does that make sense? In what sense does a New Testament believer, a believer in our day, have an advantage over the esteemed, loved, highly regarded Old Testament prophets? That question makes sense? Okay, because that's the point of this text. By virtue of where these people lived, and when they lived there, they knew things that the Old Testament prophets spoke about, but went, huh? Like, they wrote it down, but they wrote better words than they knew. They told things that they couldn't fully understand because of their vantage point. They lived hundreds of years before the coming of Christ. Some, Moses, 1,500 years prior to the coming of Christ, who was the first prophet called out in Scripture. It's fascinating. 
And what what Peter is arguing here is that a New Testament believer who trusts in the cross work of Jesus has an advantage over the Old Testament prophet who longed to know what he wrote meant. I know that wasn't grammatically correct, but you understand what I'm saying, right? They said things and then they went, what? What? It, it, It perplexed them. And what Peter is saying is a New Testament believer has clarity, whereas an Old Testament prophet was perplexed. He was nonplussed. He wrote it, but he wrote better than what he knew. And the text tells us in verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. They were writing truth that a future generation would lay hold of and understand in a way that they never could. And here's what Peter's saying to the church. Because you live on this side of the cross, you have a fuller and larger understanding of the coming of the Messiah and of all of his work than any Old Testament believer could have ever hoped for. Because they didn't have all the data yet. All the puzzle pieces weren't in place. Okay? So so just walk through this with me. The, The advantage is one of proximity. And I think I'm doing this right. An Old Testament prophet talked about the cross. Peter is in an interesting position, right? Because Peter lives on both sides of the cross. You follow me? So when Jesus said, the Messiah must suffer many things and then be taken into glory, What happened to Peter? It blew his mind. It blew his mind. What did he know? He knew the Old Testament prophecies. You know what the Old Testament prophecies are that talk about what you see in verse 11? At the end of verse 11, it says, trying to figure out the circumstances which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing to when he predicted the sufferings of the Christ or the Messiah. The Messiah in the Old Testament is the anointed one. In Psalm 2, the anointed one is exalted to a throne. And he's going to bring justice, vindication. He's going to ruin all the people that are breaking things. He's going to bring justice. And so Peter, when he, when he heard Christ say that he was the Messiah, it lit his fire. He couldn't believe. He was living at the time when God's deliverance had come in the person of the anointed one. And when you see the name of Jesus Christ, understand this, Jesus Savior is his name. The Christ is a title. It means the anointed one. Okay? And so Peter is asked by Jesus, right? Hey, Peter. What do the people say about me? Remember this, Matthew 16? Well, some say you're a prophet, some say you're John the Baptist, some say, and Jesus says, wait, 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 stop, stop. Who do you say that I am? What are you convinced of? And Peter, as the spokesman for all the disciples, says, that's easy. By virtue of what you've done, you are the Christ. You're the anointed one of Psalm 2, the anointed one of Psalm 110 that sits on a throne. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, that's correct. But I'm more. 
Peter's confession, you are the Christ. Peter's confusion. A few verses later in Matthew 16, 21, what happens? Jesus says to the disciples, you guys got this all right, and now we must go to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, another synonym for the Christ, must suffer many things at the hands of the leaders and be killed, and on the third day, rise again. And Peter stands back and applauds. Now what does Peter do? Never! Which side, he's on this side of the cross. He doesn't know about the death and resurrection of Christ. So when the Christ, the anointed one, says to him, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Christ, the anointed one, who the Father puts on a throne that rules over and delivers from Rome, that one is going to Jerusalem, and he must suffer many things at the hands of the depraved religious leaders and die and be raised on the third day, Peter loses his ever-loving mind. <laughs> Why? He doesn't know what I know. He has no concept of the death of Christ, the suffering of Christ to pay for his sin. He doesn't fully grasp that because he's like us, right? He hears about somebody who's gonna come and deliver and set us free and, and, and make life happy. No suffering. Peter says, I'm down for that. You're the Christ. And then the Christ says, yeah, but I must suffer many things, be handed over and die. And Peter's response is, that will be over my dead body. And he lived up to the promise. In the garden, when they come to arrest Christ, who grabs a sword and wants to take on the Roman guard? You know what? It's Peter. Why? He loved Christ but he loved himself a little more than he loved Christ. And so Jesus has to say to Peter, Peter, listen to me. Get behind me, Satan. Stunning. Because Peter's thinking at that time threatened the unfolding of God's plan of salvation. And Jesus would have none of it. Because he said to Peter and the disciples, I have come to do my father's will. And the Christ must suffer. What's he doing? He's quoting from Isaiah. Isaiah 52, and I think it's verse 12, it says, the Messiah will be lifted up, and the disciples are, yeah. But then it says this, he will be disfigured beyond human recognition. Simultaneously. Folks, that's the mystery of the Old Testament prophets, isn't it? That's what caused them to go, what did I just write? God, are you, are you sure? He'll be lifted up. That's the idea of exaltation. But in that exaltation, he will be brutalized beyond human recognition. Folks, that's the cross. So the exaltation of Christ and the cross of Christ rise together. What does that mean? It means that the king, the anointed one, is going to a cross to bear your sin. And Peter's like, Oh, my word. And he resists. In the garden, he resists. At the cross, he feels shame as Christ is crucified. But after the resurrection, Peter has a different perspective. Peter has clarity. And in Acts chapter 2, he's preaching, and he says, God raised this Jesus to life again, and we are all witnesses of this fact, exalted to the right hand of the Father. Now he gets it, right? 
the Messiah, the anointed one, after his suffering, is exalted to the right hand of the Father. That's Peter's message. Isn't that beautiful? On this side of the cross, Peter's like, no. As Christ is dying, Peter feels shame, but sees his own need. And from this side of the cross, Peter looks back and says, yes, he was, the, he was and is the anointed one, but the anointed one first had to suffer and then be raised on the third day and then be taken into glory. Okay, now, what does that mean for us? And in what sense is a believer privileged? And in what sense does Peter actually fully understand and get the gospel? In 1 Peter 2, 24, Peter's going to say, he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree so that we being dead to sin might live for righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. What did Peter understand? Peter understood the beginning of verse 10. This, concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace of God that was to come. Okay, I want you just to let that phrase settle in. This idea of the grace of God that was to come. So Old Testament prophets spoke of a gift from God that was to come, which is eternal life through the cross work of Jesus Christ our Lord. And as Peter writes to this early church in the midst of their suffering. He wants them to have joy in their suffering because the outcomes of it are glorious. And he wants them to understand their privileged position as they suffer and as that suffering is stealing from them, as it threatens them, as it tears them down. Remember, you are loved by God more than you could ever imagine. You are treasured by him and precious to him. Peter understands that Jesus had to go into the fire of suffering to drink the cup of God's wrath for us, to bear the consequence of our sin in our place so that we could be forgiven. And here's where we stand. We stand here listening to Peter and we look back and we say, hallelujah, what a savior. A savior that suffers and then is taken up into glory. And folks, do you see a pattern in that? The pattern is that suffering comes first and then glory. Same thing is true in my life. Same thing is true in the life of every follower of Jesus. Every person who knows the grace of God that was to come in the person of Christ knows that Christ suffered and then was taken up in the glory and in that he leaves a pattern for us the privilege that we have is to know that if Christ suffered and then was taken up in the glory, the same thing is true for us. So that when I suffer, I put it in the context of the cross. I put it in the context of understanding how deep the Father's love for me is. And it's changing me, it's transforming me, it's liberating me, it's, it, it's causing me to glory in Christ. Because I understand what he has done for me. And I love how verse 12 ends. Verse 12 ends by saying this. After talking of, of the things that the prophets were expressing, he says, even angels long to look into these things. And the idea of that verse, of that word literally means they, 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 they grab the edge of the wall and they try to get a peek. Because angels only can observe redemption. We are the object of God's redemption. 
And angels are like, how, how, how is that? How beautiful is that? How glorious is that? And they long. They stretch out their necks just to, to catch a gaze at the unfolding plan that they were part of making known, right? That's throughout the Old Testament in, in the coming of Christ. They were, the, they were declaring glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, salvation, your Savior. And then they see it unfold in our lives and they're just like, right? Here's what the Bible says. There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who gets it. One sinner whose eyes are opened by the grace of God, who, who sees that was the grace of God that was to come to me. And the angels applaud. They watch it and they look and there's, there's another one. What a, folks, listen, your privilege is this. God has given you something that angels, they're watching, they're craning because they see the beauty of it. And what Peter wants us to understand by making that statement is, do you understand your privileged position before God, which will cause you to rejoice in spite of trials because trials cannot extinguish your hope? They may at times damage it, but they cannot snuff it out because it is upheld gloriously by the work of Christ. This morning, are you a Christian? Are you someone to whom the grace of God has come? And the key point in that statement is not teaching from God, it's grace from God. Jesus did not come saying, if you want to get to heaven, do this, this, and this, and this. Salvation was never to be by behavior. Salvation was never to be by knowledge, what you know. Salvation was never meant to be by association because you go to church or because your parents go to church. It was never to be by experience. That is some, some feeling that comes over you. No, your salvation is based on a report and that report is called the gospel. The good news of what Christ has done for you, that he went to the cross, that he suffered in your place, that he died and rose again the third day and wants to invade your life with a privilege, not something you can earn, but a gift that you can only receive. It is grace that invades. It is grace that, that shocks. I'm not deserving of this benefit, yet it is offered to me. It is poured out on me. It is unearned. And it is glorious. Jesus entered the ultimate furnace of suffering, the cross, so that you and I would not have to. He drank the cup of God's fierce wrath for you. What you deserve fell on him. And by his wounds you are healed. So in the midst of your suffering, rejoice. In the midst of your suffering, understand your privilege. And in the midst of your suffering, understand that Jesus Christ, your Savior, went through the same for you. Hebrews 2, verse 17, I close with this. 2.18, I'm sorry. It says, because he himself suffered for your saving when he was tempted, he is able to help you 
in your suffering. Folks, Jesus does not stand at a distance as you suffer. No, he lived among us. He was wounded for our saving. So when you draw near to Christ in the midst of your suffering, that, that thing that's agonizing you, that is, that is grieving you, Jesus doesn't look in you and say, hey, I know all things I know. Jesus says, I know because I suffered the same. There's an old poem by a guy named Ed Shalito called Jesus of the Scars. And it says this, it says, the other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Folks, Christ suffered for our sin. He bore the consequence. He offers us a free gift, calls eternal life. And once you come to know him and you're going through a season of suffering, draw near to him. And the Bible says that he will draw near to you. If you don't know him, I want to encourage you this morning. If you desire for prayer, uh, if you want someone to pray with you, you have a desire to know the grace of God that was to come, we would love it if you would come up and pray with us. Okay, we, we are here and ready to do that for you this morning. Father, I pray that no one will leave this place today unassured of their salvation. I pray that no one will leave here today resisting suffering, <laughs> but instead embracing it and rejoicing in it because it is not, they know that it is not making them and it does not come to make them bitter. It comes to make them stronger and better followers of Christ. And Lord, we live in a world that desperately needs to see Christians suffer in a way that glorifies and honors God. So Lord, do your work in our hearts. For the one here today that does not know you, for the few that are here today that do not know you, Lord, I pray that you would open their hearts to the grace of God that has come in the person of Christ. And I pray that you would grant them the gift of faith and trust in the one who suffered in their stead. Bless as we sing our closing song. Submit these truths in our hearts, I pray, for the glory of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand together. Father, I can come. Father, I can come to you and boast of deeds I've done. In my pride, I strive to earn the favor Christ has won. He alone pleads my acceptance, all my works aside. And so I come with empty hands, and I cling to Christ. Father, I can go astray. Father, I can go astray and battle me.
Thank you, Lord, that in various trials and suffering that we go through in this life, A, they are but seasons. Help us to remember that, please, Father. 
but also that they purify us as gold, as we've talked about this morning, Lord, and we can be better instruments for your grace for a watching world. So um, just thank you for this time, for our, for our time of worship together, and uh, just bless us as we go. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat>